Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Over the last uh, number of weeks, we've touched base each week with the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, the organization that represents the small business community in this country, which employs 60% of working Canadians. Mr. Kelly is back with us, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business as well. Larry McCabe joins us. He's the owner of Pazzo Taverna and Pizza in Stratford, Ontario. Makes me want to go there right now. Uh, <laughs> how are you, Dan? I'm doing all right. How about you? Happy Easter. Right? Happy Easter to you, too. Larry, can I get a medium all dressed, please? Yeah, as soon as we get ourselves back up and running, we'd be happy to do that. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's great to be here on Easter. Let me start with you, Larry. What is your reality as a restaurant owner in Stratford, Ontario? And what are your greatest concerns about your business, your employees, and the future? Well, it's you know, Stratford is particularly hard hit by this uh, pandemic. We were looking forward to a gigantic season, a $70 million theatre about to open up, packed houses, new restaurants, new businesses opening up, lots of investment having been made, and now we're looking at, you know, instead of the best season that we could possibly imagine, the worst season that we could possibly imagine. So it's been very, it's been a very difficult time for Stratford and certainly for the hospitality industry in general and restaurant, independent restaurants particularly. Has it become a survival issue? It really is. Uh, and, you know, uh, this is why we've uh, joined together with Safe Hospitality, uh, CA, and the, the giant group of, of uh, independent restaurants that have, have come together really quite quickly to, uh, you know, stand together in this situation. We're really concerned that the whole lot of us will be wiped out if this goes on for very much longer. Dan, uh, very disturbing words, troubles, troubling words from, from Larry. Uh, I don't like to hear the words wiped out, and that's really what we've talked about, you and I have talked about, not in those specific words, but you've explained to us what the reality on the ground is. So yesterday the legislation passes in Parliament that uh, will provide the 75% subsidy to employers, uh, and again, we explain the parameters, and the money should start to flow in the next two to five weeks. Has that really significantly improved the situation and the prospect for small business in Canada, or not so much? Which one? It is uh, certainly a big help for those businesses that have been able to hang on so far to their employees through this crisis. But uh, look, it's not likely to help about uh, a third to 40% of businesses that have already laid off all or most of their employees. It's also not going to help those that that can't wait another two to five weeks uh, for, for financial support. Uh, and it won't help those that perhaps are going to be uh, are not going to qualify due to the 15 or 30 percent uh, growth revenue reduction. But still, there will be tens of thousands of businesses that will benefit from the wage subsidy and will remain connected to their employers through this pandemic. Uh, and once the emergency phase is over, they'll be able to call those workers back uh, for those that are not able to work from home right now. So it is a really helpful measure, and the government, to its credit, did pass it yesterday. Late in the game, for sure, limited in scope. Uh, but is one of the more helpful measures that has been put in place and, and will be of help. Look, the stress level for the employee will go down if they remain uh, gainfully employed and they still get their wages paid by government. That's going to be a lot more quick uh, for them than it would be if they were on some of the government supports directly. So, Dan, you have the opportunity, uh, and they do listen to you. They do listen to what you have to say at the CFIB. And we know politicians listen to this program as well. What would you say to the federal politicians? What do they need to do? What has to be done in order to safeguard? And remember, 60% of, as you pointed out to us, 60% of employment is through small business. What can they do? What should they do to increase the confidence of the small business community in this country? Well, look, the... They've put in place this wage subsidy, but but this is far more than just about wages. The other major expense that business owners have, and I know the group uh, that, that's working to save hospitality, uh, which we're working with, is is very much aligned in the same way. That rent is another giant expense to most 
small businesses. And, and there is very little relief across Canada for some of the fixed costs that are going to prevent businesses from, uh, from going under. Remember why I shared this with you before. A third of small businesses that are currently closed, and right now over 80% of businesses are fully, clo- are fully or partially closed. Uh, but in those cases, a third of them are saying that they're worried that they may never reopen. If governments, particularly provincial governments, can come to their support with some meaningful rent relief, not just deferring rent or deferring property taxes, but actually paying those, those, those costs on behalf of the business community, we have a much better chance of having some of these businesses make it across the finish line. And I'll note for your listeners in Saskatchewan, uh, the Saskatchewan government has, has announced a program that, uh, that just this week, just uh, Thursday, that will give every business owner $5,000 if they've been shut down, a one-time grant. Nova Scotia has done that for, for restaurants and some other sectors. It's more limited. But we're calling on Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, all the provinces to move in this direction and quickly announce rent support for businesses. And I think that that would be of huge help to relieve some of the pressures on these guys that are that are wondering whether their businesses are going to make it, and for the employees, whether they're going to have a job to come back to. Larry, we have about a minute left. Uh, what yeah. is your message, and what is your, or, or your association's message to the politicians, both at the federal and provincial level? Well, I think it is that we need action on this uh, fairly quickly. Um, the the issue for us is that we can't really hire people back because we don't have any income. If you're talking about restaurants that seat people in a dining room, and we don't know when that's going to come back, uh, you know, we have you know immediately shut all of our business down and tried to you know do our part to save this, but. You know, the insurance companies need to come to the table to start uh, looking at these business interruption uh, policies that they've blanketly said are not applicable here. You know, we're willing to do our part of it, but it really needs some sort of uh, intervention from uh, each level of government, municipalities, provinces, the feds, uh, as well as the insurance industry needs to come to the table and start realizing that they have to pony up some money. You know, the reinsurance market has $886 billion sitting on the sidelines right now. They should uh, be part of the solution as far as I'm concerned. Dr. Drover, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, let me begin by asking you, what at what point in a patient's um, illness or progression uh, in a negative way, at what point is a patient deemed to be uh, necessary to be moved to ICU? Well, uh, thank you for having me on your show to talk about this important issue. Um, and uh, I guess the first question is sort of what, what gets somebody into the ICU? And generally it's because they need uh, some intensive uh, therapy or monitoring. And so you can sort of break those into two large categories, sort of they need uh, some support for uh, their breathing or uh, they need some support for their circulation. And those are the two big categories. But I guess the one that we're focusing on today is sort of around the breathing issue, which sometimes involves a ventilator, although not always. And uh, if I can just move a little bit sideways on the issue and, and bring up the issue of uh, of the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who was moved into an ICU in a hospital in London, dealing with uh, a worsening at the time, COVID-19 infection. When that happened, what did he's out now, of course, with the ICU, but when that happened, what did that speak of to you? What level of concern did you have for the Prime Minister at that time? Well, certainly concern, and it's uh, as is, uh, quite appropriate for any patient. We don't have all the details about his uh, care during that time, and uh, uh, we were told that I, he's not on a ventilator, but that doesn't does not mean that he didn't get some sort of uh, other support, uh, increased levels of oxygen or uh, some other equipment to help with his uh, his breathing or his oxygen levels. So, so that's certainly possible. Uh, but it sounds like he had a, a fairly uh, good course in that he was only in for a few days and then started to improve and and of course then left. So if a patient is moved into ICU, and you're right, this is all we're talking about now is respiratory issues, and that's on people's minds. So if you're moved into an intensive care unit, into your intensive care unit, and there's a, a breathing issue, perhaps somebody who's older than 60 and they have pre-existing health conditions like asthma or some other respiratory issues, COPD, uh, for example, what what happens inside the intensive care unit? When that person arrives, I guess you assess and then what are the options that you have in front of you? 
Uh, well, yes, you're right. It's uh, it's first a very careful assessment to, to sort out what the what the issues are and what the uh, what's going on with the patient, and then trying to uh, develop a treatment plan that uh, most uh, suits the patient's problems and uh, addresses those, and uh, and at the same time uh, supports their uh, care and uh, and improvement. Um, and so it's a, a complex series of assessments, and uh, particularly when we're looking at uh, things related to the lungs, uh, certainly oxygen levels are are one of the things we look at, um, uh, but there's other things as well, uh, such as uh, uh, the other gas that we talk about, that uh, people breathe in oxygen, but they breathe out carbon dioxide, so we look at that as well. We also look at the patient and how they're doing, what, uh, what they look like, how hard they're working to breathe, uh, uh, other aspects of that that uh, help sort of make a complete picture of what's, what's happening with the patient. Uh, and so those things go uh, all together to make a complete picture of what, uh, what's going on with the patient and, and how we can best help them. And this isn't specific to COVID-19, although that's certainly on everybody's mind at the moment. Uh, uh, COVID-19 can be put in the category of any severe pneumonia, and it just happens to be one of the viruses we can identify, but there are certainly other viruses and bacteria that cause uh, severe pneumonia as well. And generally, the assessment and uh, things around that are roughly about the same. So what exactly is pneumonia and what happens to a patient's lungs um, who has COVID-19, particularly a patient who has a pre-existing condition? What does this virus do to the patient's lungs? Well, the, the virus or uh, other uh, organisms uh, cause uh, injury to the lung. Uh, they uh, attach to the surface of the lung, the lining of the lung. Uh, and causes an inflammation, uh, and it's the uh, inflammation that uh, causes the injury to the lungs and causes the lungs to fill up with uh, fluid and inflammation uh, fills up the spaces. And if it's a mild case, then it's uh, you know small parts of the lung that are affected, and, uh, and uh, people can have that and manage at home. Uh, and uh, traditionally, it was for older folks might have been called walking pneumonia. Um, and as it gets more severe, it involves more areas of the lung and uh, eventually re- causes enough inflammation in the lung that the uh, person needs some other special treatment, initially just oxygen. Uh, and then oxygen may not just be enough. Uh, they may help with their breathing and help with uh, getting extra oxygen into their into their system. So I want to ask you about ventilators uh, in a moment, but, but, but I'd like to first of all ask you about the doctors, the nurses, the sports staff, who work in ICUs and uh, who know what they're facing, and particularly the uh, the crews that you work with in in your ICUs. Tell us about the uh, the men and the women who actually go into voluntarily. You do this as well. While the rest of us are isolating ourselves, you're actually going into the IC into the in- intensive care unit, and you're confronting the virus. Uh, yes, uh, this virus and, and other uh, other viruses and bacteria as well. Sure, contagious and. Uh, so, and there's a whole team of people that are involved in, uh, in managing these people. Uh, so there's the physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, uh, there's the dietitians, the physiotherapists, uh, there's the, the people that stock the shelves, there's the cleaning people. Uh, there's a whole army of people that are involved in looking after any one patient that uh, is in the intensive care unit. You must be very uh, proud of them. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's a remarkable team to work with. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and it all it requires teamwork. There's no one of us that can do it without the rest of the team. Uh, a, a very uh, important aspect of how we uh, make things work to get things done is uh, by working together. My guest is uh, Dr. John Drover. We're talking about uh, ICUs in uh, intensive care units. Uh, Dr. Drover is a professor in the Department of Critical Care Medicine and Surgery at Queen's University, also regional lead for critical care at the Southeast Kingston Health Sciences Center. Dr. Drover, so much talk, so many questions, so much curiosity about ventilators, and that part of it was fueled by the fact that we know there aren't enough ventilators in Canada, and there was a, cons- a misconception, I think, publicly, and uh, I certainly was uh, partly guilty of that. I didn't know much about ventilators. I knew that they existed, obviously, and that there were some uh, challenges about using them. But can you tell us, first of all, who is eligible for a ventilator among patients in ICUs? What what makes you eligible? And then what are the what are the positives of, of ventilators? How are they used? And then we can get at uh, what the uh, downside of ventilators can be, uh, if you wouldn't mind. 
Well, yes, there's a whole lot of questions wrapped up in that. I know. Uh, I tend to do that. Series of things, so I'll have to try and uh, separate them out a little bit. And, sure. Uh, just to say that, you know, the uh, who's who's eligible for getting a, a ventilator, it really depends on what their problems are and whether it's appropriate to use a ventilator to treat the problem that they got and whether they'll get better or not. Uh, but let's step back a little bit from that and just talk about the, a ventilator. The ventilator is just a piece of equipment. It's used quite commonly and, uh, and every day and just uh, when people come in for care for surgery, for instance, and uh, when people go to sleep to have their appendix out, uh, or have any other operation for that matter, they're usually put on a ventilator uh, for a period of time to have their operation, then they wake up and they're taken off the ventilator and carry on. And at that time, their lungs are healthy though, right? That's right. Yeah. So it's a little different. So that's just a piece of equipment. And it's a fairly complex piece of equipment, probably more complex than most cars. Um, but in the context of pneumonia and people getting severe pneumonia, it's a, it's a bit different in that it's a more complex ventilator than is used perhaps in the operating room and also uh, it's uh, more a marker of uh, severity of illness uh, so uh, you know lots most people with pneumonia don't need to get a ventilator well yeah, it's not necessary for them to get better they'll get better just with antibiotics and time um, and uh, for people with a severe pneumonia who are having trouble breathing not getting enough oxygen in uh, a ventilator can help support them uh, while their lungs get better the ventilator itself doesn't actually make the lungs better. It's a way of trying to support people to keep them alive a bit longer while their body heals uh, with other treatments, uh, such as antibiotics for some pneumonias. Sometimes it's just a matter of time. Uh, and so the ventilator uh, supports people while uh, while their body heals. Uh, but it's, as a marker of illness, if you're on a, a ventilator for severe pneumonia, uh, it suggests that you've got a very severe problem. And even outside of... Uh, you know, COVID disease, uh, if somebody has a severe enough pneumonia that they get on a ventilator, uh, there's a fairly high chance they won't survive to leave the hospital or be better again. Uh, and it may be as high as 30% in some populations. Uh, so it is a, a marker of illness. Uh, and uh, that is a, an important thing. Uh, and because it is that, it's also important to recognize that uh, you, know, you have that severe enough pneumonia and you get on a ventilator, uh, and you're that sick, uh, that it's, uh, even if you're going to get better, it's a long road to recovery. Mm-hmm. And if you're on a ventilator for 10 days, 12 days, whatever it may be, and the, I would think that, I don't know, but I would guess that would be a, sort of at the extreme level, uh, and uh, and your lungs are damaged, uh, The there's a good, I don't know what the percentages are, but I read, there's a, a good chance that you may not survive the experience, even if you come off the ventilator, and you and you get your own breathing going again. You might still die. Yep. Yes. So yes, you may uh, even if you do get passed through that phase of the illness, and uh, your lungs are getting better, and you're getting better, uh, you can still die. There's certainly uh, when you're that sick. There's lots of other things that can happen to uh, cause you to be uh, not survive. Uh, it could be another infection. Uh, it could be heart problems. It could be uh, other mm-hmm. organs failing. Uh, and it also is a, a long course to recovery if people do get better. Uh, you know, somebody who's uh, you know middle-aged uh, who gets a severe pneumonia like that is on a ventilator for a week and a half. I can usually think about uh, you know a recovery that will be in the range of three to twelve months uh, to uh, get back to as good as they were before Mm -hmm. if they're able to get back to as good as they were before so it's a wonderful tool to have uh and uh, it 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 can save your life but it's not guaranteed to uh, bring you back to 100 percent normalcy and you you're you're not going to necessarily walk out of the hospital and 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 find in fine fettle in a matter of days Uh, may i ask you something else what is it that um why are some people asymptomatic why do some people and we're hearing this a lot, uh, have lesser symptoms and other people have more severe symptoms for the same illness. Is it underlying conditions that causes this? It's probably a collection of things, and we can't always explain why some people get a more severe illness than others. Uh, some of it may have to do with whatever it is that's causing the infection, such as the virus. Uh, some of it has to do with the person and their illness. If they're, they're, if they're frail, they have other health problems. Uh, they uh, are more susceptible to complications or just more severe disease. And there's probably some genetic underlying predispositions as well that we're only starting to explore. Uh, 
So the uh, the same illness in some people uh, may just act differently because of their genetic makeup. Uh, and that's something that we're just starting to explore and don't really know. And even though we, we're starting to learn more about uh, genetics of illness, uh, it's still there's still lots to, to learn there. And the other thing I wanted to touch base, touch on, was you mentioned about the not enough ventilators um, in Canada. And at the moment, we actually have enough ventilators. We have enough ventilators to do what we're doing. Uh, the concern was that we might not have enough ventilators if we were not able to flatten the curve. Okay. This sweeps through the population, and so many people get sick that we don't have enough resources. And the one and one easy resource to count is ventilators because it's a like a car, you can count it, count the number on the highway, you can count the number of ventilators that are in hospitals. Uh, and so we have enough to do what we're doing, uh, but if the curve isn't flattened, if we have a, an influx of people uh, that are more sick uh, than we're able to handle, then that's when it becomes a problem. And that's why all this uh, work is so important, the social distancing, the physical distancing, the mitigating factors to, uh, to flatten the curve uh, so that we don't get overwhelmed and we're able to deliver as much care as possible. Dr. Drover, I left this until last, and uh, we'll do this fairly briefly, but it's important. And that is, you, when you and I talked off the air, uh, you made the, the, the point that people should really let uh, everyone know who's involved with their health and health care what their wishes are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to be resuscitated, if you don't want to have, quote, end quote, heroic uh, measures taken, let, let the medical team know, let your lawyer know, let your family know, so that Doctors are not um, left with the decision of should we give this? Can we can we give this patient? Looking at what we have in front of us, can we give this patient all the equipment and all the treatment that you know they might otherwise get? Do we have what, what we require? Uh, so let people know what your what your wishes are. Very important. It's something we deal with all the time, even when there isn't a pandemic. This is conversations that we in the ICU have uh, every day trying to sort out what people's wishes are uh, about what they would want and what they would not want, what their goals are, what what do they value, what's important in life, and can we do that? Because uh, uh, there may be things that they value, but if we can't get there, there's things that we perhaps shouldn't do, and we can share that with them. Uh, okay. The other thing is to, you know, we talk about this in terms of what... Uh, and I only have a few seconds, I'm sorry. Ventilators, the other thing to think about is what can we do? And there's lots of things we can do for treatment and comfort uh, that can help people uh, through the life. All right. It was on Twitter that I indirectly met Dr. Nadia Alam. She is a family doctor in Halton Hills, Ontario. And it was a tweet by Dr. Alam that touched so many people across this country and uh, has inspired us. And uh, it is her humanity that has touched so many of us. I spoke with Dr. Alam earlier today. And uh, I know, Dr. Alam, you're not looking for anybody to uh, pay special attention to you, but you and your fellow uh, healthcare professionals are doing so much for this country and for Canadians. And your tweet that you sent out, about what happened after an exhaustive seven-hour shift really is echoing across Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mr. Green, for having me on the show. It's truly an honor. Well, uh, please call me Roy. <laughs> All right. We'd agree to that, right? <laughs> would, you, would you please uh, share with the few people who don't know yet, who haven't read your tweet, um, would you share with, with everyone what happened um, what led to that encounter, and share the encounter with us. Sure. Um, I'd be honored to. I am very lucky to do the job I do. I am a family doctor and anesthetist out of Georgetown, Ontario. Um, I get to not only work in the community as a family doctor, where I provide cradle-to-the-grave care, so care to babies all the way to patients who are facing end-of-life Um, I also get to provide anesthesia at the local hospital here. Much like the other family doctors in town, I wear more than one hat. Um, So it was on an anesthesia shift this past week where um, I was on call. I was on call for 24 hours that day. And I started my shift in the OR, as I often do start my anesthesia shifts. And coloring the usual experience in the OR I had to put on my personal protective equipment because we are in the middle of a pandemic. I have to make sure not only that I stay healthy to take care of my patients, that I in, 
that I avoid catching the virus and passing them on to my more fragile patients, my housebound elderly patients, my patients with cancer, my patients who are pregnant, my patients who aren't immunosuppressants. So I need to make sure that I stay healthy for a number of different reasons. And so I put on my personal protective equipment. I put on my N95 mask um, because we were going to be doing surgeries, and we did surgeries that day. I got called to intubate a, a, a patient on the floor who had COVID-19 pneumonia. He was in respiratory distress, meaning that he was having a harder and harder time breathing. His lungs were so full of infection that he was needing more and more oxygen. He was needing more and more help to, and was fighting to stay alive. And so I kept wearing my N95 mask because we are at a time where unfortunately we don't have enough personal protective equipment. We don't have enough masks, gowns, gloves, that sort of thing. We have a dire need in the community, but even the hospitals are running out and we don't know where the next shipment will come. The rule is once you put on an N95 mask, as long as it's not soiled, as long as it's not damaged, you can continue wearing it and thereby conserving use of an N95 mask, of another one. And so I kept wearing mine and I went down to talk to him. I, I put on fresh gear, um, including face shield and gown and, and God, it was hot. It was hot underneath all that equipment. We got prepared to go in and intubate him. And when I walked in, I looked at him, and he was this 72-year-old gentleman who was having trouble breathing. He was looking out the window when I walked in, and then he turned from the window to look at me. And I introduced myself, and I told him what my job was, why I had come to his room. My name is Dr. Nadia Alam, and I've come to help put you on life support. And I spoke to him about what life support meant because I wanted to make sure that he knew the decision he was making. And that was when he realized being on life support, being on a ventilator is not a cure for COVID-19. COVID-19 has no cure. What it does do is buy you time so that your body could try and fight it off. Unfortunately, because of his age, because of the fact that his, he already had pre-existing lung issues, COPD, that sort of thing, um, there was a good chance he would die on life support. He would die on the ventilator. And he looked at me and very quietly said, I don't want to die on a machine. I want to die looking at the blue sky. I want to die talking to my family. And so I sat down on the edge of his bed and I held his hand and we looked at the blue sky. That is, um, I've read your tweet. I'm listening to you explain what happened. And it's such an emotional response because the kindness, we hear it in your voice, the compassion and the care for your patient and for your patient roster in your family practice is so clear. And all I can say to you, Dr. Allen, is thank you for who you are, for what you do, and bless you. You're, um, you're an amazing person, and we are very fortunate to have you. I'm and that's... very touched, but I have to say I'm not special. Uh, Roy, I'm... I love the job that I do. It's an incredible privilege to be with patients at a vulnerable time in their lives, a time when I can maybe make a difference, you know, give them a good life, give them a good death. I, I do everything from taking care of newborns, like I said, to providing end-of-life care. Right. But there are thousands of doctors like me around this province. You're all, you all say that, and, and that's why we admire you all. There are times, though, when something happens with the touches us all, and we know that we're in good hands and cared for, and that matters a great deal. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for who you are, for what you're doing, and thank you for joining us on the program. I just want to remind everybody your your Twitter feed is at Doc Schmadia. Schmadia. 
S C H M A D I A, and the font is so small I can barely see it. But thank you, thank you so much, and uh, you please take care of yourself. Thank you, Roy. We'll it talk is again. It's an honor to talk to you. All the best. We always look forward to our conversation with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist and scientist, and doctor at Toronto General Hospital, professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, you're so incredibly generous with your time. You have your own family, and, uh, and and yet you're always talking to us and making us feel better. Thank you for that. Not a problem at all. Happy to chat. I mean, listen, many of us are juggling lots of different things right now, but uh, at least we're lucky enough to have jobs, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that, and I completely... Uh, it's not it's not lost on me that there's many others who aren't as fortunate. And, you know, obviously, like, as yeah. you just pointed out, we have to do everything we can to support everyone in this country. So let's talk about the support. And you've tweeted on this. The support that's necessary for seniors in Canada. And we have a horrible situation in Quebec, which Premier Legault spoke to yesterday, with people dying in a, in a senior's residence and, um, and under circumstances which are still under investigation. And uh, it's happened elsewhere in the country where seniors have died in those residences, this is a. This looks like we have a national. Well, we. I think we've always suspected we have an issue with uh, all seniors receiving the care that they should. But now, clearly, it's been pointed out there is a. There is an issue here. Yeah, this is absolutely tragic. It's it's so sad watching this unfold, and also knowing that this is still a risk for the foreseeable future. And uh, you know, obviously, we, we can pay lip service and say, well, everything needs to be done. Everything needs to be done. But we actually need to have uh, definitive plans in place to protect people in long-term care facilities and nursing homes and retirement homes, because we, we know that once uh, the infection enters these places, if someone's infected, they have about a one in three chance of dying in these centers. So this is just awful. And we have to do everything we can to prevent it. Some measures have been, rel- we have, I mean, British Columbia was actually rather progressive on this front. They, uh, they knew that one of the risks was having employees. There's a bit of precarious employment there. People work mm-hmm. at multiple different uh, sites, and if uh, an employee is infected, they can introduce this to several different sites. Uh, what British Columbia has done is they've now mandated that you can only work at one site. And I think that's a major step in the right direction. It took some financial benefit to help uh, support these people financially, for, at least throughout the, for, for the foreseeable future. And that's, you know, one step in the right direction. But, of course, we need to expand diagnostic testing in those centers. We need to expand the use of personal protective equipment and, and just the general knowledge of how to manage infectious disease outbreaks in these centers because we're just, we're just watching this unfold. But half the deaths, half the deaths in Canada are in these centers. I mean, this is, it's just, it's horrendous to watch. It is. And a shout out to Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is uh, in, in charge of public health in, uh, in British Columbia. She's amazing. I oh, think yeah. the whole country admires her and the, way, the the humanity that she has and the way she has uh, handled herself and handled the issue is uh, absolutely, uh, she, she's confidence-inspiring um, yeah, very much. Her so. total leadership. I, and she, she's a terrific leader. And the other, I think the other one who's a bit of an unsung hero as well is her next-door neighbor, uh, Dr. Hinshaw in Alberta as well. Is just, uh, you know, quietly leading that province mm-hmm. through, through the turmoil and doing a, a remarkable job. And between the two of them, it's just wonderful watching these uh, to senior public health leaders to just uh, just negotiate uh, navigate these very turbulent waters and, and really take their provinces uh, with them steer them in the right direction it's wonderful to watch dr bogosh uh, i was speaking yesterday with uh, professor peter hotez who i know you like a great deal and uh, we were talking about uh, vaccine development and professor hotez talked about the normal length of time being three to five years and optimally we're hoping for 12 to 18 months for a vaccine for COVID-19, which then brings us to the question, do we have already in our medical arsenal um, drugs, antivirals, which will prove to be helpful or successful in treating COVID-19 patients? You and I have talked about this before. Has there been any progress on this front? How much investigating is being done of already existing antivirals? Yeah, there's been a lot, actually. And, and certainly there are clinical trials that are up and running globally looking at uh, many of these uh, antiviral drugs that, again, they're already available. They're already on the market. And the goal is, can we repurpose them? We already know their safety profile. We know how they work in people with kidney disease and liver disease and pregnancy and bre- with breastfeeding. 
in children, in adults. And, you know, if we can repurpose these to fight this infection, all the better. I mean, it, it, we just save ourselves you know, time and a billion dollars to develop a new drug. Um, now, these trials, when I'm saying a trial, I'm saying that these are being studied in an empiric scientific manner in hospital and outpatient settings such that at the end of the trial you can confidently answer the question is this going to work yes or no this is not willy-nilly giving people a drug and saying hey you know what some people did okay this is actually a very uh, a systematic approach uh to doing this and and uh, trials are and, and it's not just one hospital doing it this is a coordinated approach across canada there's also a coordinated global approach as well so we're using the same um, methods to do this so that we can gather uh, the largest number of patients, treating them and, and, and having them uh, cared for in a very standardized way so we can actually have meaningful results at the end of this. And I think we'll have some very good results. I mean, for or against the use of some of these drugs, and you know, many people have heard of many of these drugs, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, something called lopinavir, something called uh, remdesivir. You know, there's, there's a lot of these drugs that are being tested. And I, I think we're going to start to see some early results in the coming four-ish weeks and these will be early results but i mean these these uh these trials are really enrolling people fast because of the uh of the you know many hospitals that are recruiting so hopefully we see some early results soon we need a win we do need a win absolutely we do we desperately need a win now what we also need and we've been hearing about and i'd like to know if there's been any progress on this is that is ppe is there uh, now an increase in, in, in the, re the very necessary personal protection equipment for medical professionals? I think it's pretty static on that front. I mean, the hospitals certainly have a critically low supply that's being managed appropriately because they're rationing. That's still not acceptable. I mean, we're still in the point where we're talking about reusing non-reusable masks, which, again, in, in any real-world situation, we would never even consider this, all the while... Alternative supply chains are being explored, um, and all the while, it's, it looks like we're trying to um, engage local industry to start creating PPE, and also simultaneously, there's many PPE drives as well. So, you know, other groups or companies or organizations that might have this are, are, are certainly donating supplies. So trying to use broken supply chains to get, to get supplies, trying to scrounge supplies from the community around us trying to create supplies locally. Um, you know what's interesting? There's a neat, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just credit where credit's due. Here comes Alberta again. Alberta buys block PPE. They buy it as, as a group, not as individual hospitals or smaller healthcare units. And they had the foresight to say, hey, this is coming. And they bought a ton of this. And they have warehouses of this. And now they're starting to donate to some of the other provinces because yeah. they have a surplus. So whoever is responsible for procurement in Alberta, that, that, that individual or those individuals need a gold medal because they clearly saw the need that was going to arise. They clearly saw that the supply chains were going to be broken, and, uh, and they, they had the foresight to do this, and they're, they're okay. And they're helping out the rest, of the, the rest of the country now while we're trying to figure out how to get it for ourselves. So huge credit where credit's due once again to Alberta. It's really, it's really nice to see the, someone leading the way here. Quoting from a Washington Post article by Emily Rahala here, after 76 days, the city's siege officially lifted, giving a snapshot of a strange but not so distant future, end quote. And uh, Ms. Rahala continues, even though Wuhan has reopened, residents are closely monitored and their movements tracked by an app that assigns a health bar code. Emily Rahala joins us, Washington Post reporter, former Washington Post correspondent, in Beijing, Emily, thank you very much for the time. And tell us about Wuhan, the city of 11 million that was locked down for 76 days. How is the city returning to, I don't, I don't, I, I would imagine not at the moment to pre-pandemic life, but uh, it, life is coming back. How is that working out for them? Well, it's coming back pretty slowly. Uh, I'd say over the last few weeks, as the number of cases uh, began to drop, people started to emerge from their homes and. Uh, take to the streets again after, in some cases, you know, months indoors. But, um, you know, even 76 days later, people are pretty nervous. And I think it'll be a while before, you know, normal life returns, uh, if it ever does. You write about an American who's in Wuhan, Lydia Chen, and you, you were in communication with her, involved in banking in New York City, who was visiting family in Wuhan when the pandemic uh, began. And she told you about 
life during the lockdown. Can you share some of that with us, please? Sure. Um, Lydia is really interesting. She's originally from Wuhan and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, lived um, in the States for many years. She was going about her life in New York, flew home to visit her parents for the Lunar New Year. And, you know, three, four days after she landed, the city was completely locked down. Um, So she was in this, you know, strange situation of being, you know, a a grown adult and having a 76-day lockdown with her parents as well as an aunt and uncle who had been visiting and uh, couldn't leave. So when, when when you think about the emotional impact of what Lydia experienced, and, you know, we're all in various stages of lockdown here in North America now, um, she also told you, and I find this very interesting because it's the emotional fallout, and I'm thinking about this, when the doors open again and it's okay to go back outside, we're probably going to be cautious. And you write that when she says that just when she starts to feel things are better, sorrow steps in and, quote, hits you in the face. Yeah, that's how she put it. Um, the way she described life now that, you know, the lockdown is officially over is a strange mix of normalcy. She can walk outdoors. She told me about going to a street food stall, getting herself a pancake, and the, the simple pleasure of feeling the sun on her skin. But she also said, you know, she's still struck with grief, and so are all the people around her. Mm-hmm. And the same, as you write, terrifying scenes were repeating themselves, playing themselves over and over and over again. And just um, emotionally, that would be an extremely difficult thing to uh, to overcome. Just how bad were things in Wuhan? Well, the situation in Wuhan in January was, you know, as bad or worse as what we've seen in New York now with the added terror that nobody knew what was happening. You know, this this virus is still very much a mystery, and scientists and researchers are trying to figure it out. And back in January, we knew even less. It wasn't clear how it was spreading. It wasn't clear how to stay safe. And people there were really flying blind. So for them, it was extra terrifying and strange now for them to be, you know, having watched the virus spread to Italy and then on to New York. It's like the same scene playing out again and again. And I think that's really difficult for someone for anyone, but particularly for a New Yorker like Lydia to watch. And she told you she wasn't going back to New York, at least not now, because she doesn't want to go through this again. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, she's just come out of a 76-day lockdown. Some shred of normalcy has returned. She can leave her apartment. She can go to the grocery store if she wants to. But even if she could fly all the way to New York right now, which is not totally clear that she could, it would probably be quite risky and expensive, she doesn't she doesn't really have it in there to go through that again, and she's going to wait until the situation in the United States, you know, calms down a little bit until it's more clear that things are under control. Emily, you know China well. You were a, the Beijing correspondent for the Washington Post. What do you make of the information that's coming out of China? How believable is what we're hearing? Um, I think two things are true. One, uh, there's very good reason to be skeptical about the numbers. Uh, China has a, a long history of, you know, manufacturing data, understating data for political reasons. And really since the beginning of this crisis, um, researchers and experts have noticed anom- anomalies with the data. And it's, it's clear that more people died and more people were sick than we know. At the same time, it's also very clear just looking at pictures, reading reports from local media, that things in Wuhan are much better. You know, people are out and about. There are not reports of hospitals being overwhelmed or large numbers of people dying at home. You know, it's possible that there's going to be a second wave. I'm sure that there still are cases that are not getting counted, but it's clear to me that things are much better there. Have you been uh, staying in touch with contacts you uh, you have in China, friends you have there? Yeah, I mean, so many uh, friends and colleagues have been both in in you know in mainland China in you know Beijing where I used to live and as well as friends in Hong Kong, have been locked down since January. And, you know, mid-March, when those those conditions spread to North America, they're sort of like, well, here's our advice. You've got to take it day by day. Um, so it's been interesting for them to have the rest of the world catch up. Yeah. Uh, you're one of us, huh? You're Canadian. That's right. Do you want to say hello to anybody? 
<laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Okay, so the takeaway then from your conversation with uh, with Miss uh, Chen is, uh, is what? Now, what are you taking away from this entire experience, your conversation with her, your conversation with your friends in China, what you know about the country? What, what's your takeaway? I mean, the first thing that, that's been, you know, was painful for her and is, is painful for me to a certain extent is just the question of why people here did not take seriously what was happening there. What stopped North America and Europe from seeing what was happening in China as something that would spread? That's one thing. And the second thing is, you know, we need to be preparing ourselves that life might not be going back to normal for a very long time. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be stuck in lockdown forever, but it means that the world's going to look different. Walking outdoors is going to feel different. Being in a crowd is going to feel different. Yeah. And we need to start thinking about how we're going to manage that and, and what that world looks like for us. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. And when you think back to 40 years ago today, what's the first memory that you have? Yeah, thanks, Roy, for inviting me. Um, uh, my first memory is... is is actually waiting all day on April 12th, waiting for some sign of uh, on the news, watching the you know, six o'clock news uh, here in Coquitlam area, and uh, waiting for something about Terry and starting the Marathon of Hope. And cause none of us really knew at that time, you know, how they how they were going to make make out uh, being in Newfoundland. We we sent them away on on April 7th. Um, you know, our family sending Terry away and Terry's good friend Doug Allward, his mom and dad were at the airport and sending them off and it took Terry and Doug two days to get to Newfoundland and uh, you know nine different stops air, air, airport stops to get there because they took the cheapest flight they could and um, so lots of memories today lots of reflection lots of hearing from so many people I've met that have uh, done their part in continuing Terry's legacy you know as you were talking <laughs> it just drove the point home that 40 years ago we had no uh, social media. You wouldn't have had to wait two seconds to get the news that Terry had uh, started the Marathon of Hope. But 40 years ago, you had to wait. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we, we, we talk about that often. How how it would be different today if Terry was to do, the, do his run today. You know, social media. Uh, you know, I mean, today uh, we've been bombarded with uh, good wishes on social media and people wearing their t-shirts and uh sure you know, the other thing that we talk about often is is it is the technology of the artificial limb that terry had to wear back 40 years ago there wasn't anything such terry didn't terry's leg was meant for walking not for running but the technology that we see in the paralympics today um you know terry could have been wearing something like that mm -hmm. yeah there's just been amazing technological changes what Tell us about why Terry. I mean, this has been asked. You've been asked this a thousand times, but remind us why Terry chose to do what he did. What was the motivation? What drove him to start the Marathon of Hope? It, it, it was simply seeing other people suffering from their cancer diagnosis. Terry was only eighteen, um, nineteen seventy-seven, eighteen years old, a kid uh, taking chemotherapy treatment. Um, Actually, because he didn't have room, he was put in a in a children's ward and saw young kids going through it, and later on, you know, adults as well. And Terry had a dream. Is how he explained it. He had a dream that he had to do something about it. And our high school basketball coach brought Terry a magazine about a an amputee who had ran the New York Marathon. His name was Dick Trom, and uh, Terry said to himself, "If he can run a marathon, I can run. I'll be able to run too." And um, Terry simply wanted to, to raise money for cancer research to, to make a difference in other people's lives. It wasn't about to Terry. It wasn't about him. He was the least important person during that run of his. He, he was doing it for so many other people and uh, those who would, would be diagnosed with cancer. You know, you talk about other cancer patients that Terry was focused on and cared about. And I remember um, an encounter, seeing an encounter, and it would, would have been on the news that the night of, an encounter he had with, a, I think it was an 11-year-old boy who was also living with cancer. And that was such a moving exchange. There must have been many of those along the route, as long as Terry was able to run, Fred. Oh, oh yeah. He, he met, uh, you know, anyway, and that's really you know, what was inspiring him to, to take uh, 
you know, every step of those 42 kilometers every day was, was the young kids that he had seen and he had met along the way and different uh, ceremonies. Uh, a couple I uh, remember was in, um, in Scarborough yeah, at the Civic Center. He met a young, young girl there who had been diagnosed with cancer. And then later on, not, not long before Terry was forced to stop at Thunder Bay, he met a young kid who, um, had the same type of cancer Terry did. He was 10 or 11 years old and uh, had his leg amputated. And uh, it was, Terry said it was the best day he had during the Marathon of Hope because they were they were able to hang out and swim. And and uh, Greg Scott uh, followed Terry on his bicycle as Terry was running that day. So that's what kept Terry going. Uh, just just amazing. Uh, the and the impact, the global impact, the uh, the Terry has had and continues to have. Talk to us about the uh, the foundation and uh, the work that's being done and the uh, the run for this year, still scheduled. Hopefully we can get it done um, on September 20th, right? September 20th, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're this time of year, we're, we're in the early stages of planning for the, the fall Terry Fox run, whether it's in communities across Canada, about 800 communities, um, you know, 9,000 schools, so all that's... Uh, we're still working and, and hoping that's going to happen. I mean, you know, if it doesn't, not able to happen physically, well, we're going to find a way of, of engaging people in their Terry Fox runs. But you're right, it's, it's global now. It's just not here in Canada. It's uh, uh, something like 36 countries around the world, uh, in some communities, uh, right. schools all around the world, um, you know, expat Canadians who are organizing them and have people who learn about Terry Fox and are inspired by him and want to do something um, for cancer research in their country. So let me also let our listeners know that uh, they can go to terryfox.org for the foundation's website. That's terryfox.org. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.